0: Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Well, hey, it's great to be back up here. Man, what a what a great series the Moses series has been the life of Moses with Pastor Jeff. Isn't that just been a blessing? Uh, it, it's it's so interesting because um, you know if you grew up in the church, you, Moses is a big name. You know, Moses is a big name, and so you're familiar with the story. You're familiar with the with the with the parting of the Red Sea and with the Exodus. But it's just it's so wonderful to get that uh, that fresh look into the text if you haven't been in there in a while. It's just been a blessing. to all right, uh, turn with me, if you would to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Oops. There we go. Matthew 5:27. And we're going to continue uh, today, uh, again, we're going to pick back up again in the Sermon on the Mount, OK, The Sermon on the Mount. So let's read the passage. Uh, we're going to read verses 27 through verse 30. You have heard, it, heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Uh, Before we begin, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need your direction and your guidance. We need to be encouraged but also convicted, Father, from your word. We need to grow. Our souls need to be watered. Uh, with your word. And so we ask for that this morning, God. Please speak to us from your word. Father, I am nothing. I know I am nothing. Um, And I need you to do this. I need your help. Um, I can't affect any change on my own, none. But Father, I trust that you will send your spirit to do just that for your people here this morning. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right i got my Powerade Zero up here, I'm going to keep my electrolytes up, so we are ready to go. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as we've said before, and, I, and as I take a break, or as J, uh, Pastor Jeff comes up, and then I kind of step in, I try to, you know, reintroduce the, the, the series a little bit. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which, as I said before, is about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom, which is God's people in God's place under God's rule. This starts with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus, okay? The Sermon on the Mount is about learning what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom and a follower of Christ. What is the kingdom like, and what are those who reside within it like? Excuse me just a moment here. So what we've said before is, is this is about the kingdom, Okay, Jesus has come to initiate a new kingdom through his blood. And what is that kingdom like? Okay, this latter part of Matthew chapter 5 uh, gives us six illustrations. And what it's showing is how Jesus' followers do more than merely conform to an outward series of external rules. Okay, the nature of his follow- followers is such that their righteousness is an inner righteousness. It's a heart change and not mere behavior modification, okay? Okay. This is a part of what we call the new covenant. God is going to give his people a new heart and write his law upon those hearts, right? So that his law will be something that it is obeyed from within and not simply from without, okay? It's not going to be merely a series of check boxes, right? You know, check here, check there, uh, that we conform to outwardly alone, okay? There's going to be something going on on the inside, Okay, And so what we see here at the end of Matthew chapter 5 is six illustrations. Okay, We see anger, which we've talked about uh, when last I was up here. We're going to talk about lust today. But Jesus will go on also to give an illustration of divorce, oaths, vengeance, and love of one's enemies. Okay, And in fact, if you look at the text here, if you look at the various illustrations that Jesus gives... Uh, toward the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, you will see at the beginning of each one he says something to the effect of, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said, but I say. Okay, now what is Jesus doing here? Now at first glance, it might seem like Jesus is, is undoing the Old Testament law here, right? Like, you know you 've heard it said before you 've heard it preached before you 've been taught before, but i 'm going to tell you something different now, but what we have to remember is that jesus has already said i haven 't come to abolish the law i haven 't come to get ri- if you think i 've come to get rid of the law, you need to think again okay i haven 't come to abolish the law i 've come to what i 've come to fulfill it right i 've come to fill it out to fill it up okay He has not come to abolish but to fulfill he is revealing its requirements of law upon the heart. And he is rejecting the rabbinic traditions that had been built up around the law to better manage it, right? I talked about how the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders had really built up a sort of hedge around the law that really was designed to make it manageable, right? To make it manageable. Now, how? How How does it make it more manageable? Well, because, like them, we also have a tendency to... To create rules and systems that enable us to conform outwardly but not inwardly, right? Because to conform inwardly is much more difficult, isn't it? It is much more difficult to have a change of heart than it is to have a change of outward behavior. Amen? Right, and so we do that. Like 10, 10 steps, ten rules to, to easier living. Have a have a obedient child by Friday. You know, we here just follow these five steps if you want sanctification, brother, sister. I've got the secret six steps for you right here. You know, eleven ninety nine at your local bookstore. Okay, so we like steps, we like rules, we like to be able to conform outwardly. Um, but what the kind of righteousness that Jesus is referring to here is an inward righteousness. It's an inward righteousness, okay? Um, Keep in mind Matthew 5.20. We've talked about this already. Remember, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that inner righteousness. Okay? That inner righteousness. So with that context firmly in place, let's jump into the passage. You have heard it said, verse 27... You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? So most of you are no doubt familiar with this passage, right? Kind of a a well-known one, all right? As it deals emphatically and directly with the timeless vice of sexual lust. Okay? Um, The glance that's referred to here, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, okay, this is no casual glance it 's a sustained one it 's an indul- it 's an indulgence of the eyes, okay an indulgence of the heart all right but before we talk about lust and we try to you know get a definition around that let 's take a quick moment again to note the power of jesus contrast here, like I talked about, like he does at the beginning of all of these uh, illustrations that he 's going to use or that he 's using so what he's doing is, is, is Jesus is giving us a fuller picture of the command, right? What command? You shall not commit adultery. Okay, so he's given us a fuller picture that it's not merely enough to conform outwardly to it, as, as in, hey, don't commit the act of adultery, right? But that it also matters what goes on within the heart itself. What's going on in the heart, Okay, we would say, so, you know, we say, like, what's going on in the heart? What does that mean exactly? Well, we don't mean the actual, you know, cardiac organ, right? We mean the heart's desires, affections, the inner life of a person, okay? What's going on in there, right? What's, what's happening there far from the eyes of any other person? What's going on in here? The thoughts, the affections, the desires, the motivations, what's going on in, in the heart, on the inside, okay? Now, why is this important? Like, why does this matter? Why does it matter what goes on on the inside? I mean, one might make the argument that, um, hey, man, what goes on on the inside stays on the inside. Like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? You know, I, don't worry about what's, what's going on the inside. You can't help that, right? And, you know, just pay attention. Make sure you're good on the outside, right? Why would that why would that matter? I mean, adultery is what matters, right? That's, that's destroying a family. That's a physical action, right? But mere lust? Really? You're going to get your back up about some glance? Okay? But, uh, but, but what matters here is what starts from within. It does matter. What goes on inside does matter to the Lord, and it matters to you as well. Let me explain why. One... It matters because righteousness has to do with character. Righteousness has to do with character. And character is a matter of what goes on in a person's inner life. Okay? Character is a matter of what goes on in a person's inner life. Okay? Character has to do with our motivations, our desires, the things we value, and the goals we are seeking. Okay? Let me say that again. Our motivations, our desires, the things we value and the goals we are seeking. Let me give an example. And I'm going to try not to knock the mic out of my ear here. Let me ask you a question. Let me put put a hypothetical to you here, okay? Which of these two people has true virtue, all right? Which of these two people? The one who saves a life, saves another person's life because it nets him fame and a heroic reputation, or the one who saves a life out of compassion and concern for the other? I ask you. All right, which person there has true virtue? Well, you would undoubtedly say, probably kids, you would say too, well, the person who did it out of compassion, right? But the person's saved either way, right? I mean, if you're drowning and someone pulls you up, you're probably not overly concerned of what their underlying motivation was, right? The point is your life is saved. But the truth is that it does matter when it comes to character and to godly virtue, why a person does a thing. Motivations matter. The goals we seek in doing the things we do speak to the kind of people we are, okay? Our desires, are they rightly oriented, okay? Or as uh, St. Augustine would say, are our affections rightly oriented, right? Do we love the things that we should love? Or is our conformity merely a matter of utility, is it merely a matter of utility because we hope to gain some advantage or to get something for ourselves? Is our concern, uh, is, is, do we desire the things of God? Do we desire the things that are, that are true and good and beautiful? Or are, is our concern more mercenary than that? Is our concern merely to get a good reputation, to be thought well of by others, right? Or maybe even to secure our entrance into the kingdom, by virtue of our good works and our good behavior and our checking of all the boxes, right? We want to make sure that our good standing before God is 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 vouchsafed, right? Like it is, it, it's in the it's in the clear, okay? So it matters what our motivations are. It matters what goes on what goes on in the heart. Even if we're not committing adultery on the outside, are we on the inside? This is what Jesus is getting at here. Second. What happens in the heart does not remain in the heart. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 15 says, uh, verse 18 says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Okay, so he's saying, hey, it isn't what goes in. He's having an argument about, um, about diet, And what the Jewish people should be eating, and he's saying, hey, it isn't what goes, it isn't what goes in, it's what comes out, right? From the heart come these things. And in that list, he gives sexual immorality. So we know that that it comes from within. It's from the heart that evil, sinful actions first arise. It's here where they begin. Okay. Sin that starts in the heart when temptation is indulged. Okay, we're not talking about temptation, right? Uh, But we're talking about once temptation is succumbed to, once it's given into, okay? The sin that begins in the heart. Uh, Pastor Ryan Hodges, who who visited us last week and preached, was excellent from Rockdale Community Church. He made this point, and I'd already had it in my notes for this one. I thought, ah, he got me, you know, a little a week early. That's okay, because I'm going to say it again. Uh, He made the point that, you know, sin wants to be free, you know? It wants to have its full he may have not said it this way, but he, it, sin wants to, it's like the ring, the, the ring of power in, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? It, it's not satisfied with just getting you a little interested, right? The sins that we think are cute, right? Our pet sins, the sins that maybe we, we throw a morsel to every now and again as like a little maybe rat in a cage, right? That thing wants to grow, It wants to grow. It wants to have control. And that is what it will try to do. It will not be tamed. Sin will not be tamed. And if sin, just like you hope your child grows up into a beautiful man, a beautiful woman, fully grown, what does sin look like when it's fully grown? Death. It looks like death. And the sins that we we keep kind of hidden down or we think that we are, that we think that we can control and, and manage... If those things can have their full manifestation, if they can grow and become what they want to become, it will be your death, and it will be my death. As Pastor Jeff said recently, sin is not cute. It wrecks lives, it wrecks souls. it wrecks churches and families and nations. It's not fun. I mean it's fun, uh, you know, in the flesh, when we are committing, you know sin is, is pleasurable for a season. But, the, but the, the long-term and even short-term often effects that it has are wicked and ugly and evil. And it is sad. It is sad to see lives of people you love and care about wrecked by sin. It's not cute, okay? It's like finding a little bear cub in your yard, you know. You might want to stay away because mama's probably nearby, right? You know, If that thing grows up, it will, it will have you for lunch, okay? And sin is exactly the same way. Now, as I've said before in another sermon, um, likely no one wakes up and says, hey, you know what I'm going to do today? You know, the sun's out. It's a beautiful day. uh, Maybe I'm off. You know, I think I'll go have an affair. I think I'll go commit adultery today. That sounds nice. I got nothing going on until about 1130, right? No one does that. That's silly. It's silly to think that way, right? But What goes on on the inside, we know that people do commit adultery, right? We know that that does happen. So where does it start? It starts from within the heart. It starts much slower and much more subtle than that, right? The battle begins in the heart, right? Temptations often come from without, right? Temptations come from without, especially in our day and age of mass media, amen, right? Are there temptations to lust that come to us from the outside? You betcha right? But the temptations that we give into, that all starts from within, okay? Sexual sins are preceded by sexual fantasies, make no mistake. And that, that act of adultery, right, that, that unforeseen, that never could have imagined situation that arise and wrecks a family, wrecks a life, do you think that it starts there? No, no, it doesn't start there. It starts right here. It starts right here in every one of us. And it isn't just adultery, church. It's the sins that take over our lives, that wreck lives, that put us far from the Lord, that condemn people. Where does that start? Where does that begin? Is it this big sensational event? No, it's not. It's not. It begins right here. Okay? Remember David. Remember King David. He goes out on his, his veranda, right? Who knows? You know, with maybe... with, with we don't know for sure, but probably innocent intentions, right? He's just enjoying the, the night. And what does he see? He sees a beautiful woman bathing, a beautiful woman, right? And, and there's a temptation to continue to look that he could have said, no, I, I will honor the Lord with my eyes. I will set him before me. But what's, what's another glance? That's not adultery, right? Another glance isn't adultery. We know what adultery is. So he gives it another glance, and then another, and another becomes another, and it becomes a, an indulgence, and he inquires about who this woman is. Well, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know, you feel bad for this servant, because he's telling King David, like, she's, she's spoken for But at that point, David won't be convinced, will he? He won't be convinced. And, and you know, I think it would be interesting to ask David, How what must have gone through his heart when he had been found out? Remember Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, uh, you know, you are the man. The Lord has, has, has seen what you've done. It's displeased him. The text says that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And remember when Nathan tells David when, he, when, when it's revealed to him that everything he's done with Bathsheba and having Uriah the Hittite, her husband, killed when she, uh, when she becomes pregnant with David's son? Remember, uh, Nathan tells David, the sword will never depart from your household. The sword will never depart from your house. David's life is nearly ruined. And in fact, if you look at Dave, the account of David's life, it's really never the same after that event. It's kind of a downhill, uh, it's kind of downhill from there. He has wars with sons and his family's a wreck and it's, it's, a, it's sort of a nasty situation. So I wonder if you could ask David... If, if you had known, if you'd have known what this sin would lead to, would you have done it? Would it have changed what you had done? But, but we don't know the future. And so what we have to do is trust that what God has said is true. We have to trust that what God has revealed in his word is for our good. It's for our good. We can't see what all will happen. Like David couldn't see, couldn't foresee that it would lead to his downfall, right? And we have to trust that what the Lord says is true, okay? Okay. Most of us know what sexual lust is, but let's give a definition. I like John Piper's. He says this. Lust is a sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. Lust is a sexual desire, I'll say it again, that dishonors its object. What is its object? The other person. The other person. Okay? And disregards God. Lust is an excessive desire... For sexual pleasure, notice I didn't say desire, I said excessive desire. Wanting sexual fulfillment too much or pursuing it in ways or relationships forbidden by God. Pretty simple, right? An excessive desire or wanting something in a way or in a place or time that we shouldn't have it. Okay? Piper says this, John Piper, he says, Sexual desire in itself is good, but God made it in the beginning, it has its proper place. But it was made to be governed, regulated, and guided by two concerns, honor toward the other person and holiness toward God. Lust is what sexual desire becomes when that honor and that holiness are missing. Okay? When you take God out of the equation, when you take wanting to honor and love God through, the, through this gift of sex, when you take that out, what you're left with is lust, sexual lust. Okay? Lust is the deformation of a good thing, namely sexual desire, a great thing. A great thing. But lust is the deformation of that good thing. So that a person desires what is not theirs to desire, or what is not theirs, right? Uh, or what should not be desired at certain times, in certain ways, or at all. Okay? And this is the nature of sin, isn't it? It's the nature of sin. Like sin isn't, doesn't have an independent existence apart from deforming the good gifts that God has given. And C.S. Lewis talks about this in um, the Screw Tape Letters, right? How the enemy, Satan, really doesn't have any original weapons or gifts, right, or things. He has to take what God has done, God's good creation, and he has to distort it. He has to deform it, right? So he takes these good gifts from God and he warps them. He takes them out of their right place. He takes them out of their right time, Right? And he, and he turns, so that they turn in on ourselves. So we take these things that are meant to express honor to God and honor for those we love and others, and we turn it in upon ourselves, okay? That we might serve ourselves. The trouble of lust is its power to reduce its original design to what one scholar refers to, reduct- refers to as reductive impulses. Reductive impulses, okay? Let's talk about three of those here for just a moment. Lust is concerned with individual gratification. Lust is concerned with individual gratification. Okay? It is not concerned with the commitments and giving of oneself that come with sex. Okay? The giving of oneself. It becomes all about one's personal pleasure. One's personal pleasure. Number two, lust wishes to separate sex from its other proper ends that glorify God. Now, what are those ends? I can think of three. The consummation of the marriage union, okay? The procreation of children, and the mutual pleasure of a husband and wife, okay? Lust seeks to separate sex from those God-glorifying ends. Again, to turn them in upon the self, okay? And number three, lust is concerned only about the physical dimension of sex. Only the physical, Okay. The emotional and spiritual bond of the two persons that become, what, what does Genesis say? One flesh, one flesh, right? Is noticed, that, that connection, that emotional, spiritual connection is absent. It's all about the physical, okay? So that sex really loses, and you know when I was writing this, I struggled for a word. The only word I could come up with here was holiness, with, is holiness, okay? It loses that. It loses, and I know this is not a word, bear with me, it's set-apartness, okay? It loses, and that's what it means to be holy, right? To be set apart for holy or special use, right? Sex loses that when it's detached and becomes merely a physical phenomenon, okay? So think about that. Missing is the context of marital love and trust and fidelity and intimacy, okay? Missing are those things. As one author writes, lust wants it, right, right? Lust wants it, whereas proper eros, or erotic love, wants a person. Wants a person, okay? And some, we can say that lust takes the full expression of sexual intimacy, takes that, and it reduces it. It doesn't make it something more. It makes it something less. You have to see that. It makes it something less. It's not a greater thing. It's a lesser thing. Okay? Like a drug, sexual sin is designed to give, give a person that instant rush and draw its users in, right? Get them in. Addictions are formed, okay? Addictions are formed despite the pangs of, of an injured conscience, right? The wounds of ill spent and now jaded intimacy, okay? And the guilt that comes with it all. The guilt that comes with it all. Sexual sin is something less, not something more. It's not something more. It's a a cheap knockoff of the real thing. Lust allows us to maintain our distance, right, from, from, from the other, and thus our security. Thus our security. We can have sexual fulfillment while still maintaining a dogged pursuit of self. Right? Lust lets us have that thing we want, but without any of the connections or commitments or responsibility or blessing even right while still maintaining our pursuit of ourselves love on the other hand requires that we give of ourselves to others it takes us out of our comfort zone we like to say okay it makes us it makes us vulnerable it makes us vulnerable to the other okay it often requires us to sacrifice for the benefit of the other without reward and without recognition it requires that we commit to the other in an unbreakable bond severed only by death itself severed only by death itself Okay? A bond that is not nullified by folly or by whim. Now, it is often asked in our day and time, why are you Christians so hung up on this issue of sex? Okay, like, what's the, what's the big deal, Christians? Why are y'all always harping on this sex thing, right? Can't you just, you know, uh, uh, relax a little bit, right? You know, calm down, take a breath. Why are you so hung up, church? I think the opposite is true. <laughs> I think the opposite is true. I think it's the culture that's hung up on the issue of sex. And because they want affirmation, not merely tolerance, but affirmation, it, it is a sticking issue and will continue to be. Okay? American in fact, think about how the fact that that almost every American kind of culture war, cultural battle, really since the 60s, has revolved around the issue of sex. Why? Because sex is powerful, and it is a special gift of God that in the hands of of a person can either be for great good or great evil. Okay? And young people especially, you have to realize that. You have to realize that. Sex, uh, when that time comes in your life uh, for you to be married and for you to enjoy that blessing from the Lord, it is a powerful thing, and it is not to be taken lightly. It's not to be taken lightly. Your body is not to be taken lightly, okay? It's a precious, precious thing, okay? But we're told from the culture, hey, there should be no constraints, right? There should be no parameters placed upon what we can do, right? on our sexual behavior. Stop, stop oppressing or repressing me, right? Let me do what I want to do. And sex is all around us, right? In the marketplace, it's used in almost all advertising. It's a, it surrounds us in television and cinema and music. It is, it is ubiquitous, okay? It's everywhere. It's all around us. And here's the thing, church. We have seen the devastation. Think about this. We've seen the devastation at a near-pandemic level of what sexual sin has wrought, haven't we? Do you know people? Do you know families torn apart? Do you know children? Do you know teenagers? Lives that have been forever impacted by the consequences of sexual sin. It is a very sad thing to see, especially when you know people. You know, I I realize that the plural of anecdote is not facts, but I have never seen a situation where a divorce happened on account of um, uh, well, I haven't seen it often on account of say finances, which is often a burden in a marriage, right? Or on account of some irreconcilable difference. Almost every situation I've seen has been sexual immorality, and one spouse has an affair. And leaves the other, the other one, and it can't be reconciled from that point. I've seen marriages of friends fall apart. Not to say that's the only reason a person uh, gets divorced. Sometimes another spouse passes away. Sometimes things happen. But by and large, nearly every situation I've seen has been because of sexual sin. Has been because of sexual sin. It's very, very sad. Notice the seriousness with which Jesus takes this sin very very serious. He says, if you look at the text, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown in the hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So is Jesus what is Jesus advocating exactly here? Is he advocating some form of like extreme asceticism or self-mutilation? Right? Uh, no, no, please don't take it that way, okay? People in church history have taken, that, taken it that way, including one famous church father named Origen, and uh, at the Council of Nicaea in um, 325 A.D., uh, they actually had to, like, ban this practice from people uh, mutilating themselves because they took Jesus' words in a very literal way. That's not what Jesus is trying to say here. Je- Remember, Jesus teaches with what? Parables pictures. And he, he's very good at this. He uses this to underscore important points, right? And he's doing that for us here. Because remember, if, if, even if you did, you know, mutilate yourself in this way, right, would that stop your lust? No, it wouldn't, would it? Right? So we know that's not what Jesus is getting at here, but here's what he is getting at. You, we should be so committed to defeating this sin, killing the sin of lust, and any other sin, and any other sin, that this metaphor he, he gives us here makes total sense. That, it, that it's a match, right? That, that the measures we're taking in our lives look something like cutting off your right hand, gouging out your eye, right? It, the, the metaphor should make sense. As one author says, it may be a metaphor, but it's not hyperbole. It may be a metaphor, but the Lord is not exaggerating here. It is that serious, okay? The stakes are high, and so we must get serious about killing sin. Now, I told Pastor Jeff recently that if I said killing sin again, or if I heard it said, I was going to explain what that meant, since that's some kind of like Christian jargon. Uh, killings, that word killing sin, it comes that the phrase sort of comes from a book by a Puritan named John Owen in a book called The Mortification of Sin, in which he said, kill sin or sin will be killing you. But John Owen himself gets that from... Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 13 uh, and 14, which says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. Okay, so that's what it means to kill sin, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Right? When we become Christians, we don't become perfect. Okay? I wish it were so. I wish we became sinless. Each, uh, every man of us here, but we don't. Right? And you probably realize that pretty quickly. Okay, and so what, our, what, what the rest of our life is really about is being sanctified in the faith and, and, and killing sin by the power of the Spirit, right? Sinning less, right? Purifying our hearts and our thoughts and our actions, right? Growing in holiness before the Lord. Who knows what might need cutting off in your life or in mine? Who knows? Careers, Maybe. I don't know, relationships, hobbies, things you enjoy. Some ways might seem radical or maybe even impossible. But as the old saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. And your soul is at stake. So take radical measures because if we find ourselves habitually indulging secret sins secret sins okay that means we are losing sight of God's holiness and if we're losing if we don't fear God in all of his holiness if we don't fear him in his holiness then we won't fear sin and its sinfulness if we don't fear God in his holiness we won't fear sin and its sinfulness so look at your heart look at your heart today I'm going to look at mine too. Let's look at our hearts and let's say, is there secret sin there that I'm indulging? Am I losing a fear of God's holiness? Because if I am, I'm at risk. I'm at risk. I'm vulnerable. Okay? It's, it's, I say that with fear and trembling. Okay? I say that with great trepidation. Um, it's a warning for us all. It's a warning for us all. Okay? Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... All around us, right? Great cloud of witnesses with the Lord. And we are, even right now, okay, since we are, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So what weights do we need to lay aside, church? What weights do you need to lay aside? Augustine says this, He that becomes protector of sin shall surely become its prisoner. Shall surely become sin's prisoner. Let's not allow ourselves to coast, church. Uh, the guys, the Tuesday morning men's group here, we met, and uh, we, I sent an article by Tim Challies about coasting. And Challies, the Christian blogger, he wrote this. He said, I do not coast toward Christ, but toward self. When I stop caring, when I stop expending effort, when I allow myself to coast, I inevitably coast away from God in godliness. And this is exactly why I'm so deeply dependent upon those ordinary means of grace. Those ordinary means of grace. Those oh so ordinary ways of growing in godliness. Scripture and prayer and preaching and fellowship. Worship and sacrament. The moment those sweet means no longer appeal is the moment I begin to slow. Are you coasting? Are you on autopilot? If you are, and we all have been at some point. We all have been. But if you are now, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. If you're on autopilot, just kind of coasting through your Christian life, not pursuing the Lord in any intentional way through his word, through relationships with, with other believers, through the church, through prayer, Christian, brother and sister, you're at risk. You are at risk. For what? Maybe adultery. Remember? No one wakes up and does it. Remember? No one wakes up and says, I'm going to have an affair today, right? Where does it start? Maybe here. Maybe here. Maybe with coasting. Oh, we got to be vigilant. we got to be vigilant. Okay, no one coasts in the holiness. I've never met a Christian who had maturity because they just kind of glided into it. No, it took effort. It, it, it took pouring over the scriptures, pouring over their hearts in prayer, investing in the church, right? Participating every Sunday in the means, the ordinary means of grace that our Lord has gave us, okay? It's, it's about being a citizen of Christ's kingdom, listen, intentionally, intentionally, okay? It's about living an intentional Christian life. Let's Church, let's be about exercising our hearts in the rhythms of grace, in the rhythms of grace. What is that? Living by the Spirit? Can't do it without the Spirit, church. We can't. If by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, Not if by your willpower, not if by your self-control, those are important things, no doubt, the Spirit uses them. But it's if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You will live. If by the Spirit. Okay, living by the Spirit, immersing ourselves in the disciplines of the Christian faith, building relationships with other believers. I hope you're doing that here. And listen, listen, gathering together every Sunday under the preaching of the Word and at the table. We're immersing ourselves in, the, in this life liturgy, right? Because listen, there's a lot of competing worldviews out there for you. And one of those worldviews is pursue sexual lust at all costs. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And that's knocking on your door all the time in this culture. I mean, you just turn on your TV. You, owe, you, you go anywhere. It's everywhere. It's on billboards and you're going to the beach. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. So you've got to be ready right? Immerse yourselves in the rhythm of grace. God, as as Pastor Jeff says very often, God is is ready to give gifts to his people. He's ready to give gifts to his people, and we want to be operating and immersing ourselves in the daily rhythms of grace that come uh, through our Lord, through the Spirit, right? These, These means that he's given us, prayer and fellowship with God's people and reading the Word. He's promised to bless those things and grow us through them. Do you realize that? He's promised to do that. It's not a maybe. He will do it, Okay? But we have to immerse ourselves there. Proverbs 423, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. I remember Pastor Jeff preached on that in his worship series uh, about a year ago. Guard your, guard your heart, church. Guard your heart. Your heart is a precious thing. And remember, that's where the fight with sin begins is in the heart. Guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. How? How do we do that? By pursuing him and all of his beauty and goodness and truth using, listen, all of the means that he has given you. All of the means that he has given you. And you're doing that right now. You're doing that right now. Okay? But it also means setting our hearts and minds. We can take, when it comes to lust, we can take individual actions. We can take, you know, measures that are specific to that and that can be good and helpful. Do what it takes to defeat this sin. Right? I think of Uh, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, recently, or maybe not as recently, he was sort of roundly criticized for um, advocating and practicing what's became kind of known in the culture as the Billy Graham rule, where he's uh, Pence, and Graham before him, of course, is very careful about um, uh, associations with women, with people of the opposite sex in professional environments, because he doesn't want to fall victim to sexual lust right and he was sort of roundly criticized for that but i appreciate his willingness to recognize that that is that his own heart can't be trusted in that way and taking measures to make sure that he honors his wife and honors the lord i think that's an admirable thing and it's sad to me when i hear christians um talk about tv shows they watch that dishonor christ i'm gonna be real controversial here okay but i only got a few minutes left. If you watch Game of Thrones, that's an issue. That's an issue, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. And if you say that, oh, that doesn't bother me, that doesn't hurt my heart, right? That has no effect on me. I'm just going to say, I think you're wrong. And I don't think that we as Christians should be watching sexual encounters or nudity or things that dishonor Christ On TV and movie theaters, we shouldn't be reading about them. Guys, we should separate our hearts for Christ. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. So what are you beholding? What are you looking at today, Christian? What are you looking at? Second Kings 17 talks about people, the people of Israel and Judah going after false idols. It says they went after false idols and they became false. They became false right? 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, here's the point, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what happens? Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding, we are becoming. So I ask you now, what have you set before your heart? What have you set before you right now in your life. What is set before you? Because whatever that is, that's what you're becoming. That is what you're becoming. Let, let us be like the psalmist of Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me. Always before me. He is at my, because he is at my right hand, I will not stumble. We, again, we cannot do this without the help of the Spirit. We need the Spirit. And also we need to keep the end goal in view uh, the end goal, which is our sanctification, our glorification in heaven. Our, 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 when we will depart from this life and be with our Savior, be with Christ. How great that's going to be, the new heavens and new earth. I can't wait. I wish you'd come back next week. I'm excited. I hope you're excited too. I hope you pray for it. I hope you pray for the Lord's return. Okay, But what we're doing when we resist temptation is we're saying, hey, I know that there is a better joy and a greater happiness to be had somewhere else. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. And what we need to do is we need to pray that God would give us the faith to see that he is better. He is better than all those other things. He's better than lust. He's better than any other sin that you might indulge or want to indulge or be tempted to. He's better. So so let's pray that God would give us the faith to see and to believe and to, again, avail ourselves of the means that he has given us to to know, to taste and see that he is good. That he is good. For those who know that they are guilty. For those who know that that they are guilty. Listen, there's often shame that comes with a past sexual sin. I get that. There's a a sort of shame that comes. And maybe you've thought or you think, um, I just don't see how the Lord could forgive this. Um, It's just too ugly. I see where he could forgive lying. I see where he could forgive, you know, other sins, but I just don't see how he can forgive this. This is just too much. It's not too much. It's not too much, Okay. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. You don't have to carry around that scarlet letter. You don't. You can be found in Jesus where, listen, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have absolution today. Okay? There is no sexual sin there's no sin that is greater than the atonement that he made for those who love him. Amen? For those who are struggling, just remember that the difference is, hey, are you moving forward, brother, sister? I know it feels like one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. You feel like you kind of stagger, and, you, and, and, and it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere, right? We all often feel that way about areas of our life that we want to grow in. But do you see progress? Maybe slow, maybe real slow, all right? But are you still fighting? Are you still praying? Are you still crying out to the Lord? Are you still making every effort to make no provision for the flesh? Okay, are you crying out to God for help? If you are, there is help for you. There is help for you. There is grace for you. There is forgiveness for you. You are in Christ, and because you are in Christ, you are His. And listen, No one, no one can snatch you from his hand. No one can take you from his hand, okay? Be assured and keep fighting your God and King. You know what he's going to do? He's going to one day end that fight once and for all. He's going to settle it. And really in a way, in the most important way, it already has been settled, right? It already has been settled in Christ Jesus. The final victory is his and will be his. And you know what? It's going to be yours as well. Amen. Isn't God good? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. God, we just pray that you, would, um, that you would allow your spirit to convict, to encourage, to strengthen your people for this fight. Father, we just pray for your help, God, and your wisdom. Lord, we know that we, we're just not enough on our own, that we can't do this on our own, that we need we need your spirit, we need your word. Father, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Let it go home with us. Let us meditate on your word day and night, that it, it, might, it might become for us a compass, Father, guiding our hearts, that our hearts wouldn't be guided by any lust or any desire for sin, but would be motivated by love for Jesus. We pray that. In Jesus' name we pray.